Well, if you have your Bible this morning, turn with me to the gospel according to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. If we were to try to end the sentence that begins with the words, Jesus is, I wonder what you'd say. Jesus is. Jesus is what? Uh, There are a lot of different words we could use. We could say Jesus is amazing. Jesus is incredible. Jesus is excellent, astounding, beautiful, marvelous, great. Uh, We could pull out our thesaurus and uh, we could come up with a number of different words. But how would you answer the question, how would you finish the sentence, Jesus is? Uh, The problem with almost every word you come up with is that that is a word that we use to describe so many other things uh, that it doesn't really seem fair that we would also use the word to describe Jesus. Uh, for instance, we could say Jesus is amazing, and certainly he is, uh, but we also say that the last restaurant we went to was amazing. And we certainly don't mean to compare Jesus with a restaurant. We will say that Jesus is wonderful, uh, and he is, but we will also say that the last vacation we went on is wonderful, was wonderful. We don't mean to compare the two. Uh, sometimes people will suggest the word awesome, and that probably is the best word to use to describe Jesus because uh, it technically means something that inspires awe, something that inspires reverence or worship or fear. Uh, but we too have used that word. Uh, so carelessly through the years that it doesn't really seem to fit Jesus. Who is Jesus? You know, the Bible uh, describes Jesus a lot of different ways. Let me just read some of this to you. Hebrews chapter 1 says, Jesus is the heir of all things, the maker of heaven and earth. He is the radiance of God's glory, the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his power, Uh, He made purification for our sins, and he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's who Jesus is. Uh, Revelation chapter 5 tells us of a time when in heaven they are worshiping Jesus, and Jesus steps forward, and the Bible says that all living creatures sang a new song. They said, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slaughtered and you purchased people for God by your blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. That is who Jesus is. It goes on in that same chapter, verse 11. says, Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels around the throne and also of the living creatures and of the elders, and their number was countless thousands plus thousands of thousands. And they said of Jesus with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. It's just as if the Bible writer couldn't come up with enough words. Blessing and honor and glory and power be to the one seated on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. That is who Jesus is. Uh, In John chapter 1, the writer describes Jesus by saying, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and all things were created through him, through Jesus. And apart from Jesus, not one thing was created that was created. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. 
The apostle Paul described Jesus in 1 Timothy 2.5 says, there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. That's who he is. Jesus even described himself on a few occasions. I'll read a couple of those to you. In John 14, 6, Jesus said of himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And he said in chapter 11, verse 25 of the Gospel of John, I am the resurrection and the life, and the one who believes in me, even if he dies, he will live. The Bible has much to say about Jesus. And as I prayed about how we could spend our summer in the Bible as a church, I just feel led of the Holy Spirit to take the whole summer and just focus on Jesus. Now I know we know much about Jesus and, and you have read the gospels and you have heard sermons preached upon the gospels and so much of what we're gonna say you've heard before, but I can't think of a better way for us to spend our summer than just to focus on Jesus. Maybe by the end of the summer, we will worship him more. We will be more amazed by who he is. Maybe we will fall more deeply in love with him if we just spend the summer focused on Christ. And so we're going to do that in the, in the gospel of Mark. Uh, Mark is one of four gospels in the Bible. The gospels are four stories that tell us the life of Christ. Uh, all four gospels they're called Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, tell the same story, but they tell it from different perspectives to give us a richer understanding of who Christ is. And so Mark, while it is not the first gospel in your Bible, but the Bible starts with Matthew, Mark was the first gospel. It was the earliest gospel. The first one that was written and the first one that was distributed, it would have been the first gospel that these early Christians read. Mark is uh, also the shortest gospel. Uh, it's not a very long gospel. It really uh, cuts to the chase, and you're going to see that as we go through the gospel this summer. And this is a gospel that's completely focused on Jesus. Now, you could say that of all of the gospels, of course, but the gospel of Mark is focused on Jesus in a way that the others are not. If you were to take the gospel of John, it is focused on Jesus by focusing on the miracles of Christ. In fact, the gospel of John is really organized, pardon me, around seven miracles that Jesus did in order to show himself to be the Messiah. And so John focuses on Jesus by focusing on his miracles. The Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke, they focus on Jesus, but they do so by focusing on his teaching, on his sermons and on his parables, and that's how they present Jesus. But the Gospel of Mark uh, doesn't have as many miracles, though there are some recorded here, doesn't have as much teaching, uh, though some is recorded here. The Gospel of Mark just focuses on his actions. Uh, it starts... Uh, it's sort of at a funny place. It leaves off the Bethlehem story. It leaves off Mary and Joseph. It just starts right at the beginning of his ministry and it marches to the crucifixion and the resurrection. Uh, it, it doesn't have any extra information. It's just focused on who is Jesus. And so we're going to walk our way through <coughs> the gospel according to Mark uh, beginning, beginning today. So Mark chapter 1 Let's read today the first uh, seven or eight verses. The Bible says, 
the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, we'll stop there uh, because I want you to notice that, as I said, this doesn't start uh, in Bethlehem. It doesn't start uh, with no room in the inn. It's going to start right with his ministry. Now, notice that Mark calls this a gospel. Now, when we think of the word gospel, we usually think of one of these four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These are the gospels, and they they certainly are the gospels, uh, but that's not how that word would have been understood by the people who read it uh, when it was written. The word gospel simply means good news. It means, hey, great news. I've got some great things to tell you, and they're all about Jesus. And so Mark begins this letter, this book, by saying, I've got good news to share with you about Jesus, the gospel of Jesus. Verse 2, as it is written in Isaiah, and now he's going to quote Isaiah chapter 40, verse 2, verse 3. He says, see, I am sending, (coughs) see, I'm sending my messenger ahead of you, and he will prepare your way, a voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord and make his path straight. So in this culture, often when a, when a king would begin to tour his lands, uh, he would send a messenger out before him to prepare the way, to make sure everybody knew the king was coming, to make sure everybody was well behaved, to make sure they had picked up the trash on the side of the road. Uh, sometimes they would build roads just for the king to come down. And so this messenger who would come ahead would prepare the way for the king. John the Baptist, we call him, was a messenger sent by the Father to prepare the way spiritually for Jesus to come. And so Jesus' ministry is about to begin, but before it begins, John the Baptist comes and he prepares the way. Uh, And you'll see what he preaches on in just a moment. Verse 4 says, John came baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, we're going to spend... Uh, some considerable time talking about that baptism uh, this morning. Uh, But John comes to baptize. This was different than baptism that they had been used to at this point. Baptism was something that happened before this time. Uh, But it was a self-baptism. And it was a baptism for a Gentile to become uh, a follower of the Jewish God. And it, it, it had all kind of different connotations. This was something very different. John comes baptizing something called the baptism of repentance. Look at verse five. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. John wore a camel hair garment with a leather belt around his waist and he ate locusts and wild honey. Now that sounds like an interesting diet, right? Pardon me this morning. Um, It's interesting that John is presented as a pretty unusual person here, and he was. Uh, He had an unusual purpose and an unusual lifestyle and and a message that would have been shocking to them, that was shocking to them. But I want you to know that, that John wasn't just some sort of freak. Jesus will later say of John the Baptist that he was the greatest man ever born of a woman. Now that includes most all of us, right? Anybody here not born of a woman? 
So the Bible says that John, Jesus said that John was the greatest of all people, past, present, and future, the greatest man born of a woman. So John is, uh, is, a, is a mighty man. Now look at verse 7, and here's where we're going to put our focus this morning, verses 7 and 8. It says, he proclaimed, this is what John proclaimed, one who is more powerful than I am is coming after me. And I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the strap of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So he's telling us that Jesus is wonderful. And that really is the whole message in a sentence. If I could give you one sentence, Jesus is the center, C-E-N-T-E-R. He is the focus of everything. Jesus is primary. Jesus is number one. Jesus is what life is all about. Jesus is enough, is what he's saying. But he tells us in those last two verses, three very important things about Jesus. And this is Jesus' very first introduction in the Gospels. Tells us three important things about Jesus. Let's see if we can understand what each of them mean. Number one, he tells us that Jesus is powerful. Look back at the beginning of verse seven. He proclaimed, one who is more powerful than I am is coming. John says that Jesus is powerful, more powerful than I am. Jesus is powerful. The Bible talks much about Jesus' power. You can see it, first of all, in the fact that Jesus is the creator. The Bible says we saw earlier in John chapter 1 that Jesus created all things and that nothing has been created that was not created by Jesus. Uh, the Apostle Paul says in Colossians 1.16, everything was created by Jesus in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Jesus is the creator. Now, we often think of God the Father as the creator, and there's a sense in which that is the case. But the Bible, when it talks about creation, very specifically said it's Jesus that, that created things. So if you go to the ocean this summer and you look out across the water and you are amazed at the, at the, at the ocean, you ought to remember that Jesus created that motion, that ocean. If you go to the mountains this year and you look at the mountains and, and you're just amazed at the creation, you ought to know that all of that came from the heart and from the imagination of Jesus. Jesus is powerful. When you look into the face of a baby, when, when, when you look into any of the intricacies of life, know that Jesus created that. We see his power in creation. We also see his power just in his presence. Uh, there is a story in Luke chapter 8 where Jesus was in a crowd of people and people were, were crowded all around him. But there was a woman who was very ill and she touched the hem of his garment and the Bible says she was healed just being in his presence. Jesus, in fact, stopped the procession and said, who touched me? Now, Jesus knew who it was, but Jesus wanted to take that opportunity to explain to people that even in the presence of Jesus, there is power. And one day we will live in the presence of Jesus and know the power that that woman knew as she touched the hem of his garment. The, the power Jesus has seen in answered prayer. John 14, 14 says, if you ask me anything in my name, 
I will do it. Jesus said, if I'm on your side, if I concur with your prayers, if, if it's in my heart as well, there is nothing that I can't or won't do. And then, of course, the power is seen in the resurrection. Paul said in Philippians 3.10, my goal is to know Jesus and to know the power of his resurrection. We think about all that we do in life. The one thing that nobody can beat is death, right? And so if you die, you can't bring yourself back to life. But Jesus even had the power, the power of the resurrection to bring himself back to life. And so Paul, I'm sorry, John, John the Baptist points to the power of Jesus. Jesus is powerful. Now, we understand that, but, but what does it mean to us? How does that intersect with our lives? Well, notice that, that John the Baptist personalizes this in verse 7. He says, he proclaimed one who is more powerful than I am. John said, Jesus is not just powerful, but he compared his power with, with John's own power. He said that Jesus is more powerful than I am. What we need to say is not just Jesus is powerful, that certainly is true, but we need to recognize that Jesus is more powerful than we are. We need to be able to say that with our attitude and with our actions. I believe that Jesus is powerful and is more powerful than I am. Now let me tell you how we say that first of all with our attitude. When we face difficulty, we have an attitude that says something about what our heart believes about the power of Jesus. I mean, if Jesus is my Savior and he's my Lord, if Jesus loves me and I love him, if I'm walking with Jesus and I really believe that Jesus is all-powerful and he is more powerful than anything, then I'm going to have a different attitude than people who don't have that same belief. If I really believe that Jesus is more powerful, then I'm not going to quake in fear. I'm not going to live in defeat. I'm not going to quit. I'm not going to lose my joy because I know that no matter how hard life may be, that Jesus is more powerful. Maybe you need to say it specifically. Jesus is more powerful. He is more powerful than my fear. He is more powerful than my pain. He is more powerful than my enemy, than my diagnosis. He is more powerful than my failure or my depression. He is more powerful than my loneliness, my financial hardship. He is for, more powerful than my stress, than my frustration. He is more powerful than my heartbreak. You see, when we go through those things and we we think that that's, the, that that's something that is greater than Jesus, then our attitude will reflect that. But if we believe that Jesus is more powerful than those things, then our attitude will reflect that. We need to be able to say, no matter what we go through in life, that Jesus is more powerful than whatever that is. And so I want us to practice for a moment this morning, okay? So I, I want us to say it aloud. Everybody's got to do it. This is the only thing you got to do in the service, right? But I want you to say it. And so when I give you the go, we're all going to say, Jesus is more powerful than, and then you don't have to finish the rest of the sentence out loud because everybody would have something different, right? Whatever you're struggling with, whatever temptation you're going through, whatever heartbreak. But I want us to say together, Jesus is more powerful than and then we'll just, we'll just say the rest of it in our hearts because that's what John said. Jesus is more powerful than I am. 
So I want us to say it. You ready? Here we go. Jesus is more powerful than... Now, a lot of us said some things in our heart that if we believe, it'll change our attitude. So we say that Jesus is more powerful with our attitude. We also say that Jesus is more powerful with our action. And the specific action I'm talking about is our prayer life. Did you know that you can tell how much a person believes that Jesus is more powerful by just simply looking at their prayer life? You can see about yourself whether you really believe that Jesus is powerful by just looking at your prayer life. How have you prayed this morning? How have you prayed this last week? Because a person who believes that Jesus is more powerful than anything will always be a person who prays. But a prayerless person is a person who, no matter what they may claim, does not genuinely believe that Jesus is powerful. If we were convinced of the power of Jesus, we would be people who prayed. Now, let me share with you three verses, and I'm gonna be foolishly critical of these verses. So just hang with me for a moment, and I'm gonna correct my foolishness in a moment, but let me read these three verses, and I'm gonna respond to them like I hear people respond from time to time, and then I'll try to make a point. First of all, James chapter four, verse two, where the Bible says you have not because you ask not. You do not have some things because you do not ask. And to which I think, well, Lord, why? If you know what I need, if you love me, if you care for me like you say you do, why don't you just give me the things I need? Why do I have to come and ask for those things? Why don't you, if you're such a great, loving, omniscient God, why don't you just give it to me? And let me give you another verse. Matthew 7, 7. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. Uh, to which we might say, well, Lord, why do I have to knock? Do you not know that I'm standing outside the door, that I'm desperate to come in? Why do I have to knock on the door? Why don't you just fling the doors open and invite me to come in? And the Bible says that Jesus commands us to pray in this way, Matthew 6, 11, give us today our daily bread. Uh, to which we might say, uh, Lord, why don't I have to pray it every day? I mean, my daily bread, I need the, basically the same bread I needed yesterday. I mean, my needs are pretty much the same day after day and week after week. Why do I have to continually come to you and pray if you know so much, if you're so powerful and you're so caring? Why? Well, here's the answer to that question. It is because when you pray, you declare with your heart that you believe that Jesus is more powerful. God wants us on our knees every day praying and declaring that Jesus is more powerful. How do we, how do we express that Jesus is powerful? We do so by asking him to meet our daily needs, by bringing our burdens to him, by praying, by crying out to him. That's how we say Jesus is powerful. And so as we begin our study of Jesus this summer, the first thing we see from John the Baptist, Jesus is powerful. The second thing we see is that Jesus deserves our honor. And so we're back in chapter one, verse seven. He proclaimed, one who is more powerful than I am is coming after me. But then look at the next statement. 
I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the strap of his sandals. Now that requires a little bit of cultural interpretation. What does it mean that John's not worthy to untie the sandals of Christ? Well, it's said in the ancient literature that the difference between a disciple and a servant. You see, religious leaders and teachers would have disciples who would follow them around, <coughs> and oftentimes they would have servants. And so what's the difference in a disciple and a servant? Well, a disciple would be one who was willing to do almost anything for his master. But where did a disciple draw the line? Well, in that culture where a disciple would draw the line would be untying or tying the master's sandals. I mean, I mean I, I'll do anything for you, but when it comes to those stinky feet, <laughs> you're on your own, okay? A disciple would refuse to tie or untie the sandals. A servant was somebody who was willing even to tie or untie the sandals. That was another level of humility. And so John says, not only am I not worthy, I'm not even worthy to untie your sandals. I, have, I, I, I am absolutely focused on you. What, what, what John the Baptist is saying is that if I stand next to Jesus, it's all about Jesus and not about me. He's saying, I don't draw any lines. I don't hold anything back. I don't reserve anything just for me. It is all about Jesus. It is 100% about him. Now, John says this, I think, more clearly as it's recorded in the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verse 30. You've heard this verse before. Listen to this. He must increase, speaking of Jesus, Jesus must increase but I must decrease. John the Baptist, he had a thriving ministry. Jesus comes along and now Jesus' ministry is becoming more popular than John's ministry. So people ask John about that. And John says, listen, that's exactly what's supposed to happen. I'm supposed to get smaller and smaller and smaller and more and more insignificant. And Jesus is to become greater and greater and greater. The focus should be on Jesus. Life should be less and less about my preferences and my desires and my influence and my freedom and my rights and my attention. And life should be about Jesus. He must increase and I must decrease. Now, you're probably pretty familiar with that verse, uh, John 3.30, but I think sometimes, and, and that's a great verse, and it means just what it seems like it means, but, but I think sometimes we fail to see the context of that verse. So let me back up a couple of verses and read it to you. you get a little bit of a running start here, and, and I think the verse will be even richer. In John 3.28, John the Baptist says, you yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I've been a sent ahead of him. John the Baptist said, I'm not the one. I've come to prepare the way for the one. He who has the bride is the groom, but the groom's friend who stands by and listens for him rejoices greatly at the groom's voice. So this joy of mine is complete he must increase and I must decrease. What John is saying is, he says in, in our cultural language, he says, I'm, I'm, the, I'm the best man and Jesus is the groom or 
to, you know, to mix genders here a little bit, I, I, I am the maid of honor and Jesus is the, the bride. Now, you know, if you're, if you're a best man or you're a maid of honor, the wedding is not about you. I mean, you do know that, right? <laughs> you know, sometimes they get that mixed up, but the, the wedding is not about you. It's about the bride and the groom. And so the best man, his role is to make sure that everything runs smoothly for the couple who, who are about to be married. His, his job is to put the focus on the groom. And the bridesmaid's job is to put the focus on the bride. And what John the Baptist said is my focus my job, rather, is to put the focus and keep the focus on Jesus. We ought to see ourselves everywhere we go and everything we do. We ought to see that role, that our job in this life is to keep the focus on Jesus. To keep the focus on Jesus. Uh, the, the Bible says it uh, in an interesting way in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, when it says that we are the fragrance of Christ. Everywhere we go... When we leave, they ought to be talking about Jesus. We ought to be leaving behind the fragrance of Christ. If you, if you go, to the, go to the doctor's office, you, you ought to have such an impression on them that when you leave, they're talking about Jesus. When, when you get your car repaired, even when you talk to the people at the cable TV office, imagine that. They, they ought to know that, that, that you love Jesus and that Jesus is amazing. We ought to leave behind the fragrance of Christ. He must increase and we must decrease. You know, I told you earlier, that uh, the Bible says, Jesus says rather, uh, in the Bible, that John was the greatest person ever. You know, that's, that interests, that's interesting to me. Because he's, he's running against a lot of other great people. Right? Can you think of some people who might have uh, given John a good run for his money to have the title, the greatest man ever? I think about Old Testament people such as uh, Moses or Joseph or Daniel Daniel in the lion's den. How, how could John the Baptist be greater than Daniel in the lion's den? I think about some of the New Testament heroes, Peter and, and the Apostle Paul and, and, and others. How is it that Jesus would say that John was the greatest man ever? Well, I, I've, I've studied this. John the Baptist pops up in the New Testament about a half dozen times. He's not in there often, but he pops up from time to time. And every single time, his ministry, by the way, was very short. Shortly after this, he has his head cut off because of a stand he took. Uh, but every time you see John the Baptist, you know what he's doing? Every single time, you know what he's doing? He is pointing people to Jesus. Every time you come across John the Baptist in Scripture, John's saying, look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. And you see, I believe that John the Baptist was great in Jesus' eyes because Jesus was great in John the Baptist's eyes. That makes sense? Why was John the Baptist the greatest man ever? Because in the heart, and in the eyes and in the actions and the attitudes of John the Baptist, Jesus, Jesus was the greatest. You want to be a great man or woman, then you think great thoughts about Jesus. And if you focus on Jesus, 
then Jesus will honor that in your life. There, there's one more thing I want you to see here about, about Jesus. Jesus changes lives. Look at verse 8. He says, I baptize you with the water, with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. That's confusing. Uh, what, what does he mean here? He says he's, that Jesus is going to come and baptize with the Holy Spirit. Uh, if you read this same account over in Luke chapter 3, he says, Jesus is going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Uh, that doesn't sound like a lot of fun. Uh, what, what, in, what in the world is he talking about? I baptize with water, but Jesus is going to baptize with the Spirit. Well, you must understand that there are three kinds of baptism. Uh, distinct kinds of baptism mentioned in the, in the New Testament. Uh, we'll, we'll take them in uh, reverse order. Uh, there is believer's baptism. Uh, that's what we practice here. And so a person uh, trusting Christ, his sacrifice on the cross, uh, repents of their sin, uh, makes Christ their Lord and Savior, confesses Christ as their Lord and Savior, and we celebrate that by believer's baptism. We get in the water, uh, they go back in the water. It represents that the old person has died and that you're a new person in Christ, that your sins have been washed away by the sacrifice of Christ. That is believer's baptism. It is a celebration, <coughs> pardon me, a celebration of your salvation. Now, uh, another kind of baptism that we see is this baptism by the Holy Spirit. Uh, and, the, and he says here in uh, this verse that, that Jesus is going to baptize people by the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? Well, when we put our trust in Christ, when we are saved, so to speak, from our sins, the Bible says that God gives to us, that Jesus gives to us the Holy Spirit. I am indwelt by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit dwells within me, gives me wisdom and power and conviction. The Holy Spirit gifts me to communicate or, 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 or to serve. And so we have as Christians the Holy Spirit within us. And so when, when we become children of God, we are baptized in the Spirit. We are given the Spirit of God. But then there's this other kind of baptism that John is doing, and he calls it a baptism of repentance. What in the world is a baptism of repentance? Well, it happens when a person knows the standard of right and wrong. John was preaching the truth to these people, and, and thousands of people were coming to John, and he was telling them that there is a standard, there is a law, and you have violated that law. So it's when these people knew the standard of right and wrong, they knew that they had done wrong, and they wanted to do better. They wanted to repent of their sins. And so Jesus, I'm sorry, John the Baptist, to recognize this decision would baptize them. Now, the question is, is that enough? Is that enough to really change? Did these people who were baptized with this baptism of repentance, did these people who really felt sorrowful for their sins and said, I'm wrong and I want to do better, was that enough? Was it enough for them to change? Was it enough for them to become children of God? Well, the answer is no. It's not enough for somebody to change just to feel sorrow for your sins. It is not enough for somebody to change just for you to make a decision, 
I will never do that again. Listen, what was happening with John the Baptist is something that happens in churches every single week. Good churches that preach and teach the word of God. People will decide that, that they're sorry about their sin and they want to change and they'll make the most earnest decision they know how to make. I will change. I will never do that again. I will stop sinning. I will be a different person. But I'm telling you, that's not enough. Just the baptism of repentance, which essentially is what that is, minus the water, the baptism of repentance is not enough to change a person. Why is that? Well, because the problem is that you're broken on the inside. The problem is not just that you sin. The problem is that you are a sinner. That's what your nature is. The problem isn't so much what you have done as it is who you are. You are a sinner to the core. And you can't change that. If you could change that, we would not have needed Jesus and have needed Jesus to come and die on the cross. We could have just, you know, really made people feel guilty and we could have just implored them, change, change, change. But you can't. It's not enough. We also know that it's not enough to become a child of God because sorrow over sin does not erase consequences. Just because you feel sorry about your sin doesn't mean that there's not still consequences. And the Bible says the wages of sin is death and you can't undo those wages just because you feel really bad about what you've done. Sorrow doesn't erase the consequences of sin. They might say, well, pastor, where are you getting this? I don't know. I mean, baptism or repentance sounds like a good thing. And it was as a first step. But, but how do you know that it's not enough? Well, a number of places, but I would point you to uh, and, and you might just jot this down, Acts chapter 19. In Acts chapter 19, the apostle Paul ends up in Ephesus and he comes across a group of people who had, who had made some spiritual decisions. They had repented of their sins and they had received the baptism of repentance, which means they felt sorry for their sin and they wanted to do better. But then Paul said, what do you know of Jesus? And they said, we don't know anything of Jesus. And Paul said, well, then that's not enough. It's not enough just to feel sorry for your sins and to promise to change. No, the one who brings change is Jesus. You see, because it's Jesus who can change your heart. It's Jesus who can change us on the inside. Christianity is not about just just trying harder. Christianity is about having a relationship with Jesus that changes our hearts. It is what Jesus does on the inside that'll make the real difference on the outside. It's not just a matter of feeling sorry for our sins and promising we won't ever do it again. It is a matter of surrendering to Jesus. And Paul told these uh, I don't want to call them Christians, but, but Paul told these individuals in, in Ephesus, he said, no, you need Jesus. And they accepted Christ and they, were, and, and they received the Holy Spirit of God. Listen, Jesus is powerful and he deserves our honor, but also Jesus is the only hope for a changed life. You know, this morning I want us just to marvel at Jesus, but I want to say this, uh, Without Jesus, without Jesus, there's no hope. See, Jesus is not only powerful and Jesus is not only worthy of our praise, 
But Jesus is essential. Without Jesus, there is no hope. Just so your head bowed and eyes closed for a moment. <coughs> Father, I, I pray that all summer long, as we study who is Jesus from the Gospel of Mark, that we will marvel as we have never marveled before at just the wonder of Jesus. But I pray it begins today by us surrendering to Christ. Jesus is not somebody we just need to be amazed about, but Jesus is somebody we need to surrender to. Thank you that Jesus died on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. Thank you that if we will put our trust in Christ and ask him to fill us with the Holy Spirit, to change us from the inside, that Jesus can give us the life that we so desperately need. And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing.